You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to now invite you, as is our custom, into the Bible. So I want you to, if, if, you, if you will, join me opening the Bible to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. Now, if you don't have a Bible or a smartphone that'll get you access to one, that's okay. We have a paperback Bible that is in the tray of the chair in front of you. We would love to make that even our gift to you. You can't steal that. That is our gift to you. In fact, if you know someone who doesn't have a Bible, take that. Give it. You can't steal it. We want to give God's Word away. And so we'll be in the first Gospel. That is, the word Gospel simply means good news. The, the first of the Gospels, the good news of the life of Jesus Uh, In the first of the four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so it's the first of the Gospels in telling the life and ministry and work of Jesus, and also the first book of the New Testament. So so don't be afraid of the table of contents. If If opening the Bible is new to you, we're so grateful that you're doing that. We, we've all been where you are, and we actually believe there, there is no advantage. Uh, and so there are great treasures that God gives us, whether this is the first or the thousandth time you've opened the Bible. There is no advantage. We believe that God's mercies are new, and his word speaks to us. It is living and active every single time we open it. So much so that you'll hear me say that we don't even open the Bible, but the Bible actually begins to open us. We, we might think we're investigating the Bible, and what we find is that by the power of God's Spirit, his word is actually investigating us. And so there's a passage of scripture we're reading that is doing a great deal of that. And so in the 10th chapter of Matthew, uh, Matthew has already introduced us to Jesus and who he is by his miraculous birth that we began even a year ago in this gospel. His, his kind of powerful step into public ministry and teaching, even his first most famous, most influential sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And then the following chapters were a demonstration of great active power and authority to heal and to restore, not to, not to push down and not to squash or oppress, but power to lift up those who were outcast, those who were in need, those who were hurting, and those who were alienated from God and others. And now we start the second of his five discourses, of his five public teachings. This one, less public, more just to his 12 disciples, but it's the second of those, of those prominent teachings, and it ends at the very end of Matthew chapter 10 with this phrase, as he sends out his disciples through this public exhortation, whoever receives you, receives me, and whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. And so in this second major discourse, Jesus is sending out his disciples, those who call themselves followers of Jesus, are now sent out in the way that God had sent Jesus to us. We reflect in our going the way that Christ has come. Now, that's important for us because as a church, historically Christians for the last, uh, for the last several hundred years or even thousands of years celebrate this season as Advent. You might, have even, you might see this. Uh, Advent is just a fancy word for arrival. That is that we begin to prepare ourselves to receive the one who was sent. We, we prepare for the arrival of Jesus. And so I've asked you to reflect on this, and I'll, I'll do it again, is that uh, in this season of Advent, I, I would challenge you to consider, as we consider how Jesus was sent to us by considering how we are sent from Jesus, what it would look like to simply receive Jesus. Now, I know in your mind there's a long list of things to do before Christmas, a lot of things you need to do, and I would, I would invite you to consider what if the only thing you need to do this Christmas is receive Jesus. Now, on one hand, that might upset your schedule. But on the other hand, it might free you. That what makes us distinct from the rest of the world, 
what makes us distinct and set apart even in eternity is that we are the people who having seen God sent his son to be with us and for us simply receive him. We receive him alone, nothing else, right? No, no decorations along with it. Receive him alone. And we, really, we realize that is an act of God's grace alone that we receive by faith alone. There's nothing we do. There's nothing we could do. We simply receive him by faith. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. We simply look to the way Jesus is sent and we receive him as such. And we get a window into what Advent looks like for us as Christians through through the advent or sending or arrival of his disciples. So if you're not a Christian, I want you to lean in. Listen, we're going to read from verse 16 of chapter 10 all the way uh, through the next section that ends in, chapter, in verse 33. We're going to focus most of our time on verses 26 through 33, kind of the next section as we've been walking through it. But I, I want you to see it in context, to see what it is that Jesus is sending his disciples to be and to do in the world. And we look through his sending of his disciples and us. We look through his sending of his own disciples to see the way he was sent to us. Beginning in verse 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household. So, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. 
I pray that as we expose and investigate what we find here, that the Holy Spirit uses his word to expose and investigate even us. Jesus came fearlessly proclaiming. And so he is sending his disciples out fearlessly proclaiming. Jesus says that when, you, when the people receive you, they receive me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. And so as we consider what it means for us to be sent out, we begin to realize what it looks like to receive Jesus as he was sent for us. And we see how he came fearlessly proclaiming. Now, the way that's illustrated to us, I think there's kind of two different things I want to talk about, kind of lump in this little section of text into two different things. One, Jesus shows us the fears to face. He tells us about the fears to face. And then secondly, he tells us about an acknowledgement to receive. And so we'll spend our time kind of thinking in those two categories of, of the way that these verses tell us about the fears that they will face and the fears they must face, the fears they are going to face. And then he tells them about an acknowledgement that they will receive. And so we've seen in the last week that the way that Jesus is sending is communicating through great paradoxes. Uh, that is that he gives us today, this week, uh, the paradox of the fear of others that we would have and the fear of God. And then next week we'll see kind of a paradox of of, of what it means to have peace in Christ in the midst of great strife, to, to lose your own life for the sake of finding it. What a great paradox. So this week we see that this paradox that exists in the entirety of this chapter, that, that people who receive those who were sent in Jesus' name are actually receiving Jesus and God himself. And those who receive Jesus receive those who are sent with this message, sent proclaiming. And so so this week we see there, there's, there's this call to, to, to see what it means to follow Jesus and, and yet at the same time what it means to deny Jesus. And we also see what it means for Jesus to acknowledge us and to deny us. So remember, in this passage, he's in his second great discourse, he's sending his disciples out. Right after the very first verses of chapter 10, he calls 12. Now, now numbers are always significant, and if they are, they'll, they'll be mentioned. If there's not a number, whether it's figurative or literal, the Bible usually won't make mention of it. But sometimes there can be some layers of meaning. But, but as, we, as I shared with you this, this last week, that, that as Jesus is speaking to his disciples, there's at least three different layers of meaning. One, as he's speaking, uh, speaking specifically to the apostles, the 12, in a way that applied to them in that moment. And there are ways in which we read this that, that some of that doesn't apply to us. And so, for example, he sends them out healing. And so if you've been given the power of, of apostleship in healing, praise God. I, but if that were the case, that would probably in the new, be, be in the news, and I would hate for you to keep that a secret. And as I sh share regularly, let's go to that hosp the hospitals downtown and let's shut them down. But that might have been, we believe, just for the apostles in this moment. That doesn't mean we don't pray for healing and trust God to intervene in, in, supernaturally in nature and science and in, in creation. But in this case, there are some things he's saying to the apostles that don't fully apply to us. And we will get ourselves in trouble when we try to act like we're one of the 12. But the kind of the other layers of meaning or the principles that we are able to derive in him sending the apostles, we are also sent similarly as Christians. And then lastly, you'll see, lastly, you'll see kind of the last layer of meaning is, is what's cryptic and me it's metaphorical and it's revelatory. That is that it's about something that's going to happen that's mysterious. And frankly, we won't know until Jesus gets back. 
And so this will especially become true in his later discourses. He's going to be preaching, and he's going to be making perfect sense. You're going to go, thank you, Jesus, that's really helpful. And then he'll say something crazy about something that's going to happen, and you're going to go, wait a minute, what do you mean by that? And the truth is, that's a mystery we're meant to lean on Jesus to understand. You won't be able to, you could try, you won't be able to, with all the maps, graphs, and charts you can come up with, figure it out. Because in the end, it's something that's ultimately only revealed to us as Jesus finally completes what he came to do and returns to wrap it all up. So in the way that he called out the 12, we're meant to see that these 12 disciples are meant to be symbolically this, like the 12 tribes of Israel, this new community, this new covenant people will now come through being called to Jesus and sent out by him. He calls them to himself, and he sends them out as, as proclaimers, as heralds. And so Jesus is sending, but more deeply what was being offered and what must be received is Jesus himself and ultimately God who sends Jesus. So we're, we're sent out in light of how he was sent. And in effect, as Christians are sent and as they proclaim, they're pointing to how he was sent. And while we saw last week the things that we would expect, namely, as you, I read them, you, you heard that, the manner in which they were to be sent and the way that they would be rejected. He is sent, they were sent out as sheep among wolves. We saw last week that that's good news for us because Jesus ultimately came as a sheep, a lamb among wolves who willingly laid down his life. And so in this case, we have fears. Three different times in the passage we read, beginning in verse 26, I hope you caught them, Jesus commanded his disciples to not fear. Three different times. And then he explains why. Why they're not to fear. The first one he gives them one reason. The last two he gives them kind of two different reasons. So beginning in verse 26, as we think about the fears to face, he says, so have no fear of them. Well, what then? Well, that word so is therefore. He's, he's calling back to what we read last week and what I just read a moment ago, that, that ultimately he'll be coming as a sheep among wolves and people will betray and reject People will cast him off. And that is what we can expect. But we're not above that. There's nothing that makes us above that kind of mistreatment. That's just the nature of our declaration that there is a king, a king that has come and his kingdom is infiltrating the present kingdom. So he says, have no fear of them, those who would reject you. And the reason that we are to have no fear of them, those who would reject us because of Jesus, is because nothing is covered that will not be revealed and nothing hidden that will not be known. What I think Jesus invites us to consider here, and what I would commend to you, is just how big a role fear plays in your life and mine. And it would, it would do you well, even this week, to consider what it is that you fear. And so I'll try to ask a similar, that kind of a similar question to that multiple times, even in the time we have here, because it, you would do well to understand just how powerful a role fear plays in every thought you have and every single thing that you do. And in fact, to shy away from that, to deny that, is to miss incredibly good news found in this text. So the first consideration he says is, don't fear them. Why? Because ultimately, whatever they can throw at you, the, the persecution that comes in verses 16 through 25 will not endure. In essence, he's saying, 
Facing this fear is to begin to imagine how things will end. How will this ultimately play out? How will it ultimately become clear in the end? The things that people do that are cruel and awful to one another. And in this case, the things that people would do that are cruel because because people come with good news of a king and kingdom in Jesus that is offensive. It seems overblown. It seems too extreme. And so even then, you know that they're, man, here's, here's what we talked about last week. In one sense, if, if, you, if you can only think of people who don't like what's Christian about you or what you say about Jesus, you are not modeling the compassion and care of Jesus, right? If you revel in the, oh, I, man, I lo- yeah, tons of people, yeah, I told that guy, right? If, if, Jesus, if you have used Jesus as permission to own someone, that's a problem because it you are not following Jesus, who is gentle and lowly, the bruised reed he will not break. Not because he didn't shy away from saying hard things. In fact, we see here the fourth time the mention of hell shows up in the Gospel of Matthew is in this passage. And so if you find yourself saying like, oh, you revel in that, like I can't wait to fight. Friend, you don't know Jesus. But on the other hand, if no one has pushed you away because of your convictions about Jesus so also you don't know Jesus. If you don't know what it means to be distanced from someone, you might not really be following Jesus at all. And so we see here this paradox of both proclaiming and moving towards people in compassion. And that will inevitably alienate us from others. It will inevitably alienate us from the kingdoms of the world. Because after all, when you tell people in authority, namely especially the heads of nation states, you're not my boss, Jesus is, that's fairly offensive. Uh, It's somewhat treasonous. And so you begin to understand what got Jesus hung on a cross and what got his followers also martyred. Because there's something revolutionary about saying, I do not serve the kingdoms of this world. My loyalty is to Christ and him alone. And so that will put you at odds with others. So he says, when that happens, not if, when, have no fear of them. Because what they're doing ultimately will come to the light. This is especially important for us as we we lean on and trust in the God of the universe, not just to create and get things in motion, but to sustain us and care for us. There is an encouragement here, and it it follows again uh, as a point of emphasis, and it's this. God knows. There are awful things. I know, I know. Some of you have had the courage to share them with me and others in this room. There are awful things that have been done to the people in this room. And I know, here's what the enemy would love. The enemy would love for you to think, nobody knows. And I have good news for you. Someone knows. The God of the universe knows. And one day, everyone will know. And the justice of God will roll. The power and righteousness of God will begin to eradicate all the evil in the world, and including, including the evil that was done to you. Now, on one hand, I think this motivates, motivates us, because after all, I don't mind speaking to some of you directly in this way. The power of the abuser is the silence of the victims. And some of you know this more, more powerfully than I could ever even begin to, ever begin to communicate. 
And so from you, I would say, in light of God knowing, in light of bringing things to light, man, I want to say to you, for those of you who have endured awful things, it, say something. But here's what I will tell you. If you in this room even, who have been abused and mistreated in some way, even if you don't, and I wish you would, but even if you don't, even if that's too much to bear, and you tell no one, friend, God knows. And you can trust him with what he knows. Your anger towards sin is nothing compared to the anger of God against sin. So, one of the first ways we face fear is trusting that there is a God who knows. There is nothing that can be done to us that will be kept secret. Now, on one hand, that, for those of us who think about what other people have done, is really good news, right? As you think about some of the things that were done to you or said about you, and you're like, man, that's good news. I can't wait till that happens. But, but I wonder if you'll stop for a moment and consider that that's also true for you and what you have done. And so at first glance, that might be encouraging. Oh, I can't wait till all the awful things in the world come to light. All the evil things that people have thought and done, they're going to come to light and God's going to deal with all of them. And that seems encouraging until you realize that you're included in that list. And the things you have thought, the things you have said, and the things you have done will ultimately come to light. But the idea here is that as it comes to light, it will be dealt with, it will be known, and in this case, covered by Jesus. We'll say more about that in just a moment. So he says then, in the second verse there, verse 27, kind of two things. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. So there's kind of two principles there for us who would call themselves, who would call ourselves Christians. And if you're not a Christian, this is good to lean in and listen to why we do what we do. Because I, I suspect that a lot of things that Christians do just seem strange. Um, and we get, I hope you see kind of why we do what we do. Number one is this, we say what Jesus tells us. That's it. It's very simple. We, we say what Jesus tells us. We trust what Jesus it says that ultimately I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you something into the dark. Now, now remember how this applies for them specifically is, is at first there's kind of a secret that the fame of Jesus and what he's doing is starting to grow, but we have in, in the Gospels what's called a messianic secret. That is, Jesus says kind of like, hey, don't tell anyone. And he says it at really weird times, and you're like, seems like you would want everyone to know that. And, and the goal of that is not that it would be a secret ultimately, but that what he came to do wasn't just to heal and draw crowds. He came to bear the weight of the sin of the entire world. And for all those who would look to him and repent and trust in him, he is resurrected victorious over all of our sin. And then he says, once that's done, then you, you see the secret of the, of the Messiah completely gone. And after that, it's like, tell everybody. And you see both of them here. Oh, you can kind of see the trajectory. Like, hey, we're doing some things now. I'm sending you out with this message. And it's going to get progressively larger, more popular, more powerful, more subversive, more controversial. But we say what Jesus says. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. So there's, there's this powerful sense about the authoritative words of Jesus that you and I have as Christians. That there are good and right words all around, all, all around the world in many cultures. They may overlap with what Christians believe, but ultimately we trust what Jesus has said. He is the authoritative voice. 
And our goal is to speak what Jesus speaks. And in light of that, it is to then hold very loosely and maybe even dismiss all the other things. And that even applies for now. When I'm reading what Jesus is saying, when I'm reading what, what the Bible declares, is when we're expounding upon that, listen, because I come with a derived authority. I'm speaking for God. But when I'm saying stupid stuff about like people from North Dakota or Iowa, <laughs> yeah, they're funny jokes. They say them about us too. I say, hey, you're probably in here. That's all right. You're free to dismiss that, right? You're free to go, okay, that's, that's absurd, right? And where do we get that? How do we, how do we have that triage for what's good and eternal and what's kind of like, okay, that's, that might be persuasive or helpful or unhelpful or distracting. But either way, do you see where we get this? We say in the light what Jesus has said to us. And then secondly, we say it to as many people as possible. We look for opportunities. Did you hear that? Say it from the housetops. Now, again, that might have literally been true. There might have been one of the 12 disciples, literally, who called his neighborhood together and got on top of his house and preached to them. I, I have no doubt that that's possible. But it's a metaphor, mostly. That is, get to the highest point where the most people can hear and say what you've heard me say. That a kingdom is coming because a good king has come. That there is healing, there is restoration, there is reconciliation, and God is now receiving those who would turn to him and find mercy. Tell as many people as you can. And so that's us. That's what we are as a church. That's what we are as individual members of a church. Each and every one of you, God is placed in a particular place with a particular influence with this message. Use it. Run with it. Consider for just a moment that God has not given you that platform because you're particularly special. Consider that it's a grace that because you have a message, you have a powerful proclamation of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Well, then again, you might come back to the very first, well, that's terrifying, right? That's, I, that's terrifying. Tell everybody? Tell everybody what I really believe about Jesus? Well, Jesus saw, your, Jesus saw your, your coming objections in verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So the first reason for his second command not to fear is that we ought to know exactly what to fear. If we're facing our fears, we face them first, knowing that ultimately what the, what the enemy means for our, our, our demise, God will use for Good that this persecution that the disciples would experience would not be the last word. Jesus would have the last word. And so then we, with humility, say, I have something to say. But at the same time, I have a deep fear of the Lord. Both are important. And the second way we face our fears is to understand a proper and right fear. This is the second time he says, have no fear. It's as if to say, like, you really, no, really. The first time, he's like, have no fear. And he, and, and he knows that you and I will go like, okay, fine. And then he's like leaning closer going, no, really. Now, the Bible discusses this little kind of paradox that we see here in verse 28. Fearing those who might harm you and then fearing one who can destroy both soul and body. A, a couple of quick misconceptions that can come from this that that when the, when, when the Bible speaks about the nature of human beings as we reflect and are created in God's image, it gives, it's a mystery. It's hard to define. But it uses words to help us understand, like you see here, body and soul. The idea that as our body decays and dies, 
our, our self, whoever God is and how we image him, carries on. That each of us has a soul, a spirit, that there is something about us that is more than our bodies. Now, it, it, on this earth, it is not less than our bodies. But there's a sense in which you all know this is true. One, you probably felt alienated from your body. Right? I remember when I found out I was not going to be a professional athlete. I was like, but I don't think you understand. Inside, I totally am. I am, I believe it. Like I, I did everything Walt Disney told me to. I totally believe I can be this. And there was an alienation between what I thought I really was and the limits of my own body. And I don't know how you have felt or experienced that, but we all feel that. We're like, I don't really like this. And I don't like the thought that I'm only this. This is it? This is all I am? And yet we see here that that, that kind of disconnect, that discontentment we have is actually good and right. That we are full of a, a longing and a desire and and a capacity for value and worship that's more than just what this world can offer. And he says that there, is, there, there are things that attack the body, and yet there is evidently something that has the ability to destroy both body and soul, soul and body. Now, the second misconception that can come here is kind of this, this belief, and when he says can destroy, it, it most literally is like devote to destruction or give over to destruction, that kind of idea that comes with it. And so most people think, well, this, this is like, they would use this as a, as, a, as a belief that God's judgment is actually annihilation, that God's wrath and judgment over sin is that those who of us have, who have turned from Christ, who are not Christian, will just it, be annihilated. We will cease to exist. And that, that, would be a, that would be nice if it were true. It is not. That God's wrath is better than that. And this is good, and you know this is good. Because the people who you want to receive justice for the awful things they've done, you would hate to see them get off. And God is righteous. He can't let anyone center off. And, and this is how we, this, we see this later for the, for the rest of the Bible, even how that, like, there's a, a destruction, an alienation, a distance from God that we experience. And, and that word, did you hear that? It's hell. Make no mistake about it, that word hell was no less controversial uh, when Jesus said it as when I say it. Is there a God that, that would send people to hell forever and ever? And I'll just very briefly, you may have heard me say this before, but you know that's true and you're glad. Now, maybe some cultural influences have made you question that, and maybe, you, maybe you've heard it applied in a way that's not helpful, and I hope you'll forgive those people who did that. But take a, take a stroll with me for just a moment. What's the thing you love the most? It may be a person, a thing, or an idea. What's the thing you love the most? I mean, you love it. You love it. You're, you think, right now, you're thinking about it. You can't, like, and now, in fact, I've lost you for five minutes because you're just going to think about how much you love it, right? right I'll, I'll be here in five minutes. Don't worry, right? Now, imagine what you would feel about the person who harmed that thing you love. And so you see that anger and wrath and punishment is good and right and just as an overflow of love. God loves what he has created, and he loves the people who bear his image. And to rebel against him as a perfectly righteous God cannot be overlooked, and to harm one another in the sight of a perfectly righteous God cannot be overlooked. So, do not fear those who kill the body, 
but cannot kill the soul. So he creates another paradox. Apparently, there's a way to fear people, and there's a way to fear God. Now, this is a, a reflection I want you to see. This phrase, the fear of man and the fear of God, this concept and idea is found throughout the entirety of the Bible. And so first, let's look at the fear of man. Proverbs 29, a book of wisdom, says it this very clearly. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Fearing what other people think is a trap. The fear of man, then, is a trap. It's a devastating trap. It's an awful trap. And so Jesus is not dismissing a good and right fear. That we should have fear over the consequences of things. Instead, he is saying that this fear is a snare. It's a trap. It won't give you what you want. I remember, I remember hearing a, a, a couple of pastors talk, and one of them was like, yeah, I really just find myself to be like a, uh, you know, I just really, I'm really a people pleaser. And the other pastor, without just missing a beat, just goes, oh, you're, you're a slave to the fear of man. Yeah, yeah, he is. That's right. Not me, but... And here's the thing. Some of you know this. And so here's how I would ask it. Who do you fear the most? Who do you fear more than anyone else? One day, all of your and my internet browsing history is going to come to light. All the awful things you and I have ever thought are going to be known. Every awful thing that you and I have ever said will come to light. Every single thing will come to light. If that scares you, ask yourself this. Who are you really worried that might find those things out? Maybe another way to say this is, whose approval do you crave the most? More than anyone else in the world, who do you wish would come and be proud of you and say, I love you and say, I'm so proud of you and, and all that you've done? Who are you the most afraid of? And please, be honest with yourself. It might be a crowd of people. It might be a single person. It might be a handful of people. Who do you fear the most? Who are you the most worried might find out what's really true about you? Who, who are the people or persons that you, more than anything else, you don't want them to know the awful, most terrible secret about you? And what Jesus proposes here is that if the answer to that question is not God, but you think of someone else, then there's a call to repent because you are in a prison. You are in a trap. And here's the thing. You know it. And that person, whether you want to admit it or not, even if it's a person you love and care about, owns you. And the way they own you is you have to lie. You have to put on a show. You can't be the real you. That's the fear of man. Now, there's several different instances of it. My favorite is the book of Genesis. There's two with a father and a son. Abraham uh, has, a, uh, has, a, uh, has a beautiful wife, and he's so afraid that these people are going to find out that uh, that he's married to her, that they're going to kill her, or excuse me, kill him and take his wife, so he lies, and they'll be like, that's silly, but he does it again. And then in Genesis 26, his son Isaac apparently does the same thing. Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister. 
right? Again, because he was like, I don't want them to kill me and take my wife. For why? It says, for he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. First of all, that's just a really bad strategy for intimacy and trust and marriage. I'm not married to this person. It's not helpful. Uh, that's, a, that's not good. But you see a living parable, don't you? Of a person who's willing to betray and lie because of what? They're afraid of what people will say. And I bet the majority of the lies and awful things that you've done were down deep to cover up something you didn't want someone else to find out. Jesus saw it even in his own day. It says, Nevertheless, then many of the leaders believed in him, that is Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. For what? For fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Do you feel that? Do you have an insatiable hunger for the approval and praise of people? And it's hard to admit because some of those people you actually love and care about. And you probably convince yourself that it's best for them and for you that they don't really know the real you. But friends, see that for what it is. It's desiring the praise of the creature more than the creator. And so what does Jesus say is the cure? What does Jesus say is the solution? Don't fear those because even if they could kill your body, so what? Fear the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Now, now historically, it's kind of it's it's accepted that maybe a few scholars here would like would would think when you say that you, you probably might many of you you might think of Satan, right? You might think of the idea of the accuser. You might think of the devil. He's the one who's like presides over hell in your mind. But but biblically, that's not actually true. Even though that it it, it kind of gets to it, right? It, it's it kind of gets at like, hey, don't fear this because you should fear this. But it's still even woefully short, as, as it is. The one who has the ability to destroy and judge the rest of the New Testament tells us is God alone. Is God alone. And so he says that the, the solution, the way you don't fear those who can harm you, is that you begin to fear the one who presides over all things. And so while the fear of man is a trap, listen to what the fear of the Lord is. Proverbs 1, the same, same one that warns us about the fear of man, says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools are the ones that despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord, in verse, or chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a source of knowledge, and it's the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Chapter 14 says it this way, and many of you probably heard this quoted the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. The fear of the Lord then, as we see, just, just, just three examples of this. You can, you can do your own searching to see this, but like the fear of the Lord is the source of life, knowledge, and wisdom. And the way through the terror that you and I have of what people think is not to simply ignore it, but to weigh it against the fear of the Lord. And to weigh it against the life-giving, knowledge-bringing, and wisdom-granting fear of God versus the trap and prison, the fear of what other people think. How do we know that's true? It says verse 29. 
Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? He's already made a bird analogy back in the Sermon on the Mount, but he gives us another one. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? That's the cheapest commodity you could think of, like the cheapest living thing, as as he kind of gives us an example at the top of his head. And not one of them, the cheapest living thing that you could get a hold of, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even a sparrow, the cheapest living creature, as it falls to the ground, is in the presence of God, not not apart from the father. And if that weren't enough, he gives us another Example, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. Do you hear the antidote to fear? To weighing it against God. But also to hear that the God who has the right and authority to punish all the sins that you and I have committed knows us. And cares about us. I love the word that values us. You've heard me use this analogy a lot. I'm a, I'm a younger brother, so I wear hand-me-downs, and I don't mind used stuff, like buying and selling used stuff on Craigslist, whatever. Uh, maybe, you, maybe, maybe that's weird to you, but uh, in, the, in the world of buying and selling used goods, uh, a lot of people have an inflated sense of value. They're like, oh, I had this thing my grandfather gave me. It's worth blah, blah, and they make up some number. And in, in buying and selling used goods, we know the truth is a thing is worth what someone will pay for it. And Jesus is making this analogy here. He's saying, like, are not sparrows cheap? <laughs> isn't it easy and isn't it even by the means of a penny possible to acquire them? And he invites us to consider a mystery. That if something is worth what's paid for it, then we get to stop for a moment and ask, what is a person worth? What am I worth? And, and the answer for thousands of years for Christians is this. That God, in his infinite beauty, majesty, and value, all glory and wealth and honor, emptied heaven to be with us, for us, and like us. St. Jerome says that he came, he was born in the dung heap to rescue the people from the dung heap. To purchase you and I out of our brokenness and sin. Friend, you are worth what someone would pay for you. And for those who would look to Christ, we see we have infinite value. Not because of anything we've done. But the God who cares about sparrows and knows their value, knows the hairs of your head and sent his son to redeem you. What a, what a miraculous thought, right? He knows the hairs of our head. I saw that somewhere between, uh, every human somewhere between, loses between like 50 and 200 hairs off of their head every day. That doesn't even count the hairs on the rest of their knuckles, like some of you, right? 50 to 200 a day. That means that somewhere between like two and 3,000 uh, hairs, even just in the couple hours that we spend a week, have being sh- are being shed in this group of people every time we gather in this place. Now, I know some of you who are more germophobic, you're like, I know, I've been trying, I wanted you to say that. Did you, did you not, have you not been paying attention, right? That's bizarre that the God of the universe knows every single one. He's watching as it's vacuumed up, hopefully, right? <laughs> you look, right? <laughs> he knows. 
Now, this transforms the way we see the world and see God's grace through it. In our family, we talk about this. Every time you see a dead animal, especially a dead bird, we're meant to stop and pause and go, when you, you see that dead bird, you're meant to be reminded of the good news. God knows. That bird is dead right there, so I would be reminded about how much God loves and cares for me. But here's the weirder one, and I know, I, but I have to say it. Every time you're at a restaurant and you pull a hair out of your mouth or your food, stop for a minute. The God of the universe knows where that came from. And he loves the person it came from. I know. Again, I think, I think when, you, when your eyes are open to this, you see the mystery of God's grace everywhere. But look, the way we conquer fear is by admitting that there's something greater to fear. And, and that one who is greater and, and should be feared even more loves and values and knows us in ridiculous ways. Fear not, therefore. You're of more value than many sparrows. Let me give you some practical applications before we conclude. I think probably one of the, as we consider that, as we weigh the, the fear of man and the fear of God, if, as we face our fears, uh, I'll give you maybe some practical ways to tackle or face the fear of man. One, consider God. Did you hear that? Consider God, who will reveal all things, who knows all things. Consider God. Now, we've already done this. Praise God. This is what we do every time we get together. Uh, we do it as we read Scripture, and we're called to worship. We turn our eyes away from whatever was weighing on us, and we, we look to God. We sing about God. We, we, we look to Him, and then hopefully someone stands up here and talks about God and how amazing God is and what He's done for us in Jesus. That's one of the greatest ways to tackle and face the fear of man that, tack, that will in, ultimately hinder mission. It will silence our proclamation of the good news, is that we consider God. I heard one author say it this way. It's like, imagine for just a moment that you are in your house or your apartment or wherever you are, or your tent, this story may be more real for some of you, and you see a mouse. So imagine you're in your house and there's a mouse, right? Imagine your reaction. Now, I know for some of you, you don't have to imagine. You're like, that, that's real. I, don't, like, I apologize. I just took you to a dark place. But imagine you're in your house and there's a mouse, and, you're, and think of all that goes through. We've got to get rid of this guy. You, I mean, I've, I've, seen, I've seen some crazy things. I was, in a, I was with, a, I won't name the person, um, because I love them and, and I'm related to them. And, and I, remember, I remember one time there was a mouse in, that we saw in the house, and the person said, can you shoot it with anything? <laughs> and that's what fear does. You're like, let's burn this place down. I don't like, there's no reason to live here anymore. Let's blow this house up. There's no, like, that's, that's what a fear of a mouse would do. But imagine now in that moment that you saw a mouse that's in your house. Imagine in that moment that a lion was in the house. With your sanctified imagination, can you, can you just for a moment think about how you would now think about the mouse? Can, can you see, like, there's a lion and there's a mouse. Can you see how absurd it would be for someone to go, like, we really need to call an exterminator about these mice, right? <laughs> like, there's a lion. Are you kidding? Friend, here's a Jesus juke of all Jesus jukes. You and I have been called to behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. There is nothing else. There is nothing else that, that ought to strike your fear, including that mouse of a bully in your life, that mouse of a boss, that mouse of a parent, that mouse of a family. You get the idea? They seem awful until you see the lion. No one ever looks at the Grand Canyon and thinks, I'm a big deal. Right? No one stands at the base of Mount Everest and goes, I'm awesome. 
when you behold something that great, all of a sudden things come into perspective. And he says the way you tackle the fear of man, as paralyzing as it can be, is you behold God. The second thing we consider God, the second thing is we consider and confess our sin. This is one of the best ways that we tackle the fear of man. We confess sin. It, it frees us then. Like it's, it's hard to be afraid of someone's approval, and it's, it's hard to be a slave to them when they've confessed their sin to you and when you've confessed their sin to them, your, your sin to them. It, it, it has a powerful ability to free. All of a sudden, we realize we're not that big a deal. And it's easy to think highly of yourself or others if you don't take sin into, the, into account. And this is why most of the people you're really afraid of, you've never heard them confess sin. And so let me just, for a minute, urge for you, for, whether it's as a parent or as just somebody who cares for children or is around children, which is all of us, one of the best things you can do is confess your sin. And so, friend, if you're not confessing your sin to your children, you are putting them in a snare. They are living in a prison of your approval. And I know you'll say, well, my parents never did that. You're like, exactly, because they were living in the same prison. Stop being like your parents, hiding your sin, like Adam and Eve. You get it? And one of the best ways you can free people from the fear of men, from fear of man, is to consider and confess sin. It's the best way to experience real love and real community. I say this often to our leaders. You can either be impressive or known. You can't be both. So if you and I have gone for more than a little while without confessing sin, then we're probably creating a prison of the fear of man. Friend, if you lead or are part of a gospel community in our church, if you have not confessed sin to them or to people in it in the last week or two, you are creating not a community of the gospel, you are creating a snare of the fear of man. And one of the greatest ways to fight anxiety at the heart level is to give and receive confession of sin and to see your value that God knows, God sees, and yet there is nothing. There is, did you hear that, that powerful phrase, that all good is going to come to light? There is no sin that can come to light about you for which God has not paid in Christ to atone for. And yet, on the other hand, think about what he leaves us with. If these are the fears to face, he leaves us with the acknowledgement to receive. So everyone who acknowledges me before Men I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now this is on par with crazy things he's already said, but listen to what he's saying. He's saying that he is the only way to God. That accepting or rejecting Jesus is accepting or rejecting God. And receiving the acknowledgement or denial of Jesus will happen before God. But look, Jesus came to acknowledge the fearful before the Father. Jesus perfectly feared the Lord and then was perfectly delivered through resurrection. And Jesus came to acknowledge those who would look to him. Now this is interesting because he quite literally says, don't betray or deny me. And what happens? One of the guys he sends out, Peter, denies him loudly three times and adds curses to the last one. Blankety blank, I don't know him, right? And so you're meant to say, well, does that mean Jesus? Or does that mean Jesus cast off and denied Peter? No. Do you get it? This is more of a posture of a person who rejects Jesus and, and rejects his need for being made right before God, 
who wants to hide these things that they know might come to the light. But, but think, of, think of how true and powerful this is for Peter, who denied him and yet was received and later says that he was born again to a living hope because of the mercy that he received from Jesus. He says, those who stand before God in their sin will have me to acknowledge. And so here, the thing that you and I get to proclaim boldly and without fear, not because we aren't terrified of what people think, we absolutely are. It's one of the most terrifying things I have to deal with every single time I stand up here is I really, really, really care about what you think. And that makes us all in danger. But how do you face that fear? With the acknowledgement that you and I receive from Jesus. You can go into persecution fearlessly proclaiming the good news that before the throne of God, I have a perfect plea. What? What's that plea? That it's not that bad? No. There's a great high priest and he lives to plead for me. He advocates for me. There's nothing that comes to light that he hasn't ultimately covered. And before the throne, Jesus says, it says, he acknowledges them. Now, now this, this word here is interesting. It's, it's this word from homo logos, which is same word. And it just means to agree, but in kind of a, in a weird way, like, yeah, same thing. Like, it, it's, it's a way of saying, yeah, same. That, that's the agreement. And so for us to say that we're with Jesus is to acknowledge that Jesus now says he's with us. Think about that. And think about how that melts the fears that you and I have. One day, I will stand before the throne of God and all my browser history and all the things I've ever said or done and thought, all the awful things that I hope no one finds out about, Jesus is going to say, this one's with me. He's going to say, same, I'm with him. And instead of what is awful being brought to light in shame and judgment and hell, I will be credited with everything that's true about Jesus that I'm fearless, accepted, adopted. So friend, look to Jesus today. Acknowledge that he is a good Lord and a good Savior. Acknowledge to God and before others. And you know what will happen? Jesus will acknowledge you before the throne of God. So for some of you, it might just be to consider this week, hey, what would it look like for you to live this week in a way that acknowledges God and a way that denies God? What would it look like for you this week to to acknowledge who Jesus is or to deny who Jesus is. For some of you acknowledging Jesus, it, it's public like this, is saying, I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not afraid anymore. And so for some of you, we do this regularly, right? We celebrate baptism. For some of you, the, the way that the first century church acknowledged God and said, I'm with Jesus, I'm with him, same, I'm with this guy, is, hey, I'm buried and resurrected in the water the same way he was buried and resurrected in the tomb. And for some of you, this might be, baptism is it. For some of us, it's communion. We, we take the Lord's Supper and we say, I'm with the one who is broken and shed for me. For some of us, just, we're here attending, singing, and saying, I, okay, I'm, maybe for the first time, and every time you've attended here, for the first time, you're going to sing like you mean it. Because you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm with this one. I'm with Jesus. I want all the stuff that he has to offer me. Look to Jesus today. Acknowledge him for who he is, and he will acknowledge you. And I acknowledge before you today that Jesus, before God, one day will assure me. He will agree with me. That is, one day I'll stand before God. I'll stand before the God of the universe to answer for all the awful things I've done. And the God of the universe will demand an account. And he will say, what, why should I not, as we see here, destroy you in hell? And you know the only thing I'll be able to say? I know Jesus. 
And you know what will blow your mind? Because you're going to be there. He's going to go, yeah, you do. Friend, let that melt away your fears. Let that melt away the fears of your past, the fears of the present, and the fears of the future. Let that melt away all the fears that would keep you from experiencing joy. Knowing that the one you should fear has now sent his only son so that we would have no cause for fear. Let's pray and thank him for that. Jesus, thank you that you give us the right and ability to come before you. It's in your name we pray today. Thank you that you have ultimately endured faithfully and courageously in the midst of fear. Thank you that when you had the opportunity to, to simply lash out against and to stop everything that was happening to you, you, you fearlessly entrusted yourself to God the Father. I pray that now, even in this room, if there's any of us, maybe that that seems too far-fetched and that seems too good to believe, might we even this morning turn to you? Might some in this room who are not Christian begin to consider the possibility that there really is a freedom from fear? There really is a meaning. There really is value. Might they be overwhelmed with the good news that they are known, even down to the hairs of their head. And as deeply as they are known by the Father, to that same extent, are they offered atonement, forgiveness, and grace in Jesus. Maybe for the rest of us, today is just a morning to, to, to pause and reflect on you and our sin. And to realize that the, the fears that have shaped us and paralyzed us are small compared to the lion of the tribe of Judah. Lord, might we turn away from these lesser fears. Might we confess the ways that we regularly look to these things to give us hope. We fear what people think more than we fear what you know and think. We value what other people say more than we value what you say, that in Christ we are received, that all who would look to him in faith would find mercy and grace. Help us now to identify with him by some act of faith. Help us now to say we're with the one who was dead and buried and resurrected for our sin. And might we feel, even in that confession, the powerful acknowledgement of Jesus that we belong to him, that we are sons and daughters of God. Might we receive that from the Father through Jesus this morning as we respond in faith. For it's in Jesus' name that we receive these things and pray. Amen.